We've been singing about it, and before we look at it directly from the scriptures, let's ask the Lord to help our understanding once again. Heavenly Father, thank you for the one who was worthy, the only one. Thank you that he's worth singing about. Thank you that that great name is the name of the Lord Jesus. And thank you that we can pray in his name, we can live in his name. And thank you that one day our eternal destiny will be realized and each one of us will be able to rejoice with a great scene similar to what we'll see as we read these scriptures now. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's turn together to Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5. And we're going to look at these 14 verses. This is really Worthy is the Lamb, part 1. And Lord willing, sometime in the new year, we'll get to part two. So you'll have to wait. But uh, it's a great scene, and it's worth rehearsing. We can read this many times between now and then on our own and see what is here. Okay, so Revelation chapter 5, I'll read the first 14 verses, the total 14 verses. Then I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. I thought we sang very well tonight. I enjoyed it a whole lot. Singing was great. 
Can you imagine this scene? Can you imagine this heavenly scene? It was a new song, it says here. It won't be a new song to us because we've been singing about how worthy the Lamb is. But what a great thought that we have that to look forward to. We've arrived in our study of the book of the Revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ at the beginning here of chapter 5. Chapter 4 focused on the throne in heaven. If you turn back to chapter 4, just to remind us the centrality of the throne and why it was so significant, why it was so important, so important because of the one who sat on the throne. And you'll notice everything that is taking place in chapter 4, it's taking place with reference to the throne and the one on the throne. If you glance again at verse 2, we see the first of a number of prepositional phrases that tell us the centrality of this throne. It's on the throne. And of course, the one on the throne is clearly identified as God the Father. Verse 3, twice, around the throne. Verse 4, again, around the throne. Verse 4, on the throne. And this is different ones, different thrones now. Uh, chapter 4, verse 5, from the throne. Verse 5 also, before the throne. Verse 6, before the throne again. Verse 6, around the throne. Verse 9, on the throne twice. Verse 10, before the throne. That's 11 times we've got a prepositional phrase telling us of how central the throne is in chapter 4 and always is and always should be because of the one who's on that throne. Now we have in chapter 5 a focus on the Lamb, but a focus on the scroll, and we see that quite often. If you can see the picture that is on the screen in front of me, you'll see evidence of this particular scroll. It is written on both sides. It's got seven seals. Uh, Those seven seals will be opened one at a time and reveal what is under each one of them. But we read about the fact that it is written on both sides, and we'll see there's some significance to that. We also can see another picture. We could, but I'm shooting blanks. Here we go. We have another picture, and you can see the scroll of seven seals. You see at the bottom, right here, this is a tag. It's got a, it's got a name, the silly boss. It's the tag pasted on the edge of a scroll. It recorded the title of the scroll and the author information, what was needed. It's not mentioned here, but this would be the legality of a particular scroll. And then you can see also you have what we would call the seven seals or seven bullway as they're known. The presence of those rather than just one mark that scroll as a legal document and probably a will of some kind. Now what I'd like to explain is that chapter 5, focusing on the scroll in heaven, but more particularly on the one who's able to open that scroll, Please don't compare this chapter to other chapters in Revelation where there's a whole lot of excitement and there, there, there is the opening of seal after seal and we've got all of these creatures coming and all of this devastation, all of the horrors, all of the woes that are there. And this is kind of mild, it's kind of tame, it's, it's very uplifting. But don't confuse or underestimate the importance of chapter 5. Because here in chapter 5 we read of the scroll that some have called the book of redemption. And we'll get into that in a few moments a little bit more. One godly commentator makes what I believe is a very exciting observation. And he says this. He says, this chapter contains the key to the understanding of the rest of the book. If we err here, we will be wrong the rest of the way. 
So a, a very significant chapter here, chapter 5. If we don't get this right, we're going to get lost throughout the rest of the book in our study of Revelation. He goes on to say, the scroll of him that sat upon the throne is the official document which determines the great crisis and climax of human history. In other words, this is really a big-time chapter in our study. may not have seemed like it. We've got this heavenly scene, and if you don't like music, maybe you weren't enthralled with what's going on there, but the praise of the one on the throne and the one who is worthy to open the scroll is very, very significant, and everything else in the book is going to come from what we're going to see here. So what I'd like to say is tonight will be an overview of chapter 5, We aren't going to get into verse by verse and phrase by phrase and identify all of these things that are here. That's coming, but tonight will be an overview. And I'll warn you in advance, we've got to work hard tonight. Are you ready to work hard with me? I know some of you are very tired. It's been a long day. Some of you aren't. Some of you are ready to go, but we're going to have to work hard um, in order to come to this understanding. And we've asked the Lord for help to do that. First, let's go back to the future. By that, I mean, let's turn to Daniel chapter 12. We're going back, but Daniel 12 is going to take us to the future beyond where we are right now. So if you'll turn with me to Daniel chapter 12. Last chapter in the book of Daniel, Daniel had a whole lot to say about end time events. It's a great book to run parallel with the study of the book of Revelation. But in Daniel chapter 12, we're going to get a glimpse of significant prophecy that is said to be revealed at a future time. So chapter 12, verse 1, at that time. And as we study this book, we realize that time is far future from Daniel's time. And in fact, it's 2,600 years at least from the time he refers to that until our present today. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince, who has charge of your people. Talking to Daniel, your people would be the Jewish people. Michael is the angel who has special reference to a ministry with the Jewish people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time, your people, this is the Jewish people, shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Verse 4, very significant to our study tonight. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Now we've identified Revelation chapter 4 as that time of the beginning of the end, the beginning of the tribulation period, when the end time events will all start to happen. But Daniel's supposed to shut up the words in what he's seen and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro and knowledge shall increase. We certainly live at a time where knowledge has increased and keeps increasing all the time exponentially to what we've ever known in the history of of mankind. Then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, two others stood, one on this bank of the stream and one on that bank of the stream. And someone said to the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of that stream, How long shall it be till the end of these wonders? 
And I heard the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream. He raised his right hand and his left hand toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and half a time. That would be three and a half years if you look at that carefully and understand that meaning. A time is one year's times is two. A half a time is half of those period, that period of time, three and a half years. And that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things would be finished. Again, significant to our study tonight. I heard, but I did not understand. Then I said, oh, my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? He said, go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. Now, we believe that that's where we are now, the time of the end. Is this the same scroll here in Revelation chapter 5 that Daniel referred to? Well, the timing and the subject matter suggest it may very well be the same scroll. Prophecy is such a fantastic study. And to be able to understand that all of those prophecies that were ever written about the Lord Jesus have taken place at his first advent, at his life on earth, at his death, his resurrection, all of those have been fulfilled exactly as they were predicted. But there are still some more predictions hanging out there. When will they be fulfilled? They will be fulfilled as this becomes known when the scrolls are open, the seals are open on this scroll. Ezekiel describes a similar scroll. The pattern of prophecy in the scripture, again, is remarkable. Ezekiel, in Ezekiel chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, this is what it says. And when I looked, behold, a hand was stretched out to me, and behold, a scroll of a book was in it. And he spread it before me, and it had writing on the front and on the back, And there were written on it words of lamentation and mourning and woe. So when we arrive at Revelation chapter 5, we've got some hints coming to us from Ezekiel and Daniel about what is coming. We've arrived at a heavenly scene that will announce the beginning of the seven-year tribulation period. And at the heart of the matter is that scroll that we first see in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. It was written on the front and the back, like Ezekiel's was. And that shows to us that it was full, it was comprehensive. The woes and judgments it describes will be just as complete. The scroll is made impressive by the fact that God is holding it, the one on the throne is holding that scroll, and by the reverence with which it is treated. And then we saw what else happened. We saw that scene, and we're going to get to that scene in more detail another time. But what a great scene. There is this thing going on there in heaven where nobody is found who is worthy to open the scroll or open the seals on the scroll and unveil what is there. And the Apostle John, who's writing these words, is actually in tears. It's more than that. He's loudly sobbing because no one is there to open it. But then it becomes known there is somebody who can do that. And worthy is the Lamb who was slain. He's the one who had a victory. He's the one who had a great triumph, and he can do that. But I want us instead to look at the overview, as I said, the scroll itself, a book of redemption. It is referred to very often. And the key to understanding the scroll is not to concentrate on the horrors that it's going to unveil, but to realize it is a book of redemption. The one who opens the scroll is the lamb, still showing the marks of crucifixion, according to verse 6, a lamb as if it were slain, 
There, that lamb who was slain for us, who died for us to redeem us, a book of redemption here before us. Here's what Peter says, inspired by God the Holy Spirit in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, talking to believers. Knowing that you were ransomed, other translations say redeemed, knowing that you were redeemed or ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So we were redeemed at a price. We were ransomed at a price. All these big kidnappings with all their ransoms, and they want all this money and all that sort of thing. It was more precious than the money that any ransom could ever achieve. It was with the precious blood of Christ. And it says, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. That's why the lamb shows up in Revelation chapter 5 as well. Do you notice they're, look, they're, they're talking about the lion of the tribe of Judah, and he looks, and all of a sudden there's a lamb standing there. It's one and the same in two aspects. It's the Lord Jesus, who is both the lion and the lamb. You look at chapter 5, verse 9, here in the book of the Revelation, where it says, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. Once again, other translations, instead of ransom, use the word redeemed or purchased. That is, we ourselves were ransomed, we were purchased, we were redeemed. True redemption has its roots in the past, but its final fulfillment is still future. As believers... We've been redeemed already. We've been bought out of this marketplace of sin. We've been removed forever from the slave market, and we've been set free. That's already happened when we're in Christ. That was accomplished at his first coming. But there's more redemption to be accomplished at his second coming, at his second advent. And we've seen about that. We saw about that this morning. But look at Luke 21, verse 28. I have it on the screen, but I'll read that. Now when these things begin to take place, these things that were marking the time of the end, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. There's a future aspect to redemption as well as a present one. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, in him... You also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, that's, of course, the Lord Jesus, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. The NIV says here, until the redemption of those who are God's possession. Another significant verse tells us that we still have something to wait for. In Romans chapter 8, verses 22 and 23. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we await eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. We're going to get new bodies when we're glorified. At that rapture, at our death, we get our new bodies. Some of you may remember Layman Strauss, an older writer, evangelist. He talks about there being three things 
that need to be redeemed in the Old Testament. This is part of our working hard tonight, just to grasp this concept. Three things that are redeemed in the Old Testament. A man could sell himself into servitude back then. If he ran out of money, couldn't pay his bills, he would sell himself into servitude as a servant, that is, to someone else. They would become his master. However, a close relative could redeem him from his servitude. He could ransom him out of it. He could buy him back. He could purchase the end of that servitude. The one who redeemed him was called a kinsman redeemer. Kinsman meaning a relative, a near relative could do that. So here is somebody, he's run out of money, he's in debt, he sells himself as a servant to someone else. And as he does that, he doesn't have to stay a servant the rest of his life as he has somebody who can come and redeem him, then he comes out of that servitude. So that's one aspect of those who could be redeemed in the Old Testament. There's a second one. If a woman's husband died and he left no unmarried brother to marry her, or if a living brother of the deceased man chose not to marry his brother's widow, as provided in, among other places, Deuteronomy chapter 25, then the nearest of kin could marry her. This man was also known as a kinsman redeemer. That would be a near relative who would be able to purchase her. Boaz marrying Ruth is a case in point. And if you want to read about that in Ruth, um, particularly chapter 4. So we've got in the Old Testament three things that could be redeemed. One of them is a servant. The other was the widow or the wife. And thirdly, it could be the land. And that was often redeemed. If a man lost his land, a near relative could buy it back. And that would again would be to redeem it or purchase it back. And then it would stay in the family and would stay in the family estate, and it would be given to the relatives as time went on. That's mentioned in, among other places, Leviticus chapter 25. Here's an interesting point in keeping with tonight. The scroll on which the official transaction was recorded was rolled up and sealed and placed in the court of the tabernacle or in the temple. So these three things could be redeemed, a servant, a wife, and land. Now, Layman Strauss explains that in his commentary. He also quotes from someone else in that commentary. He quotes from M.R. Dehan. Many of you know him from Our Daily Bread. He writes devotionals as well as small booklets. M.R. Dehan writes this. At this point in Revelation, that's chapter 5, the first two have been accomplished, that is, servant and widow. The church... The bride of Christ was caught up in the rapture spoken of in Revelation chapter 4, and we, his servants, have been fully redeemed, having received our resurrection bodies at the rapture of the church. But the earth, that would be the land, and the creatures in the earth, everything, all of creation, are still under the curse. The earth itself is still groaning under the curse of man's sin. These also must be redeemed, for Christ is the perfect redeemer, and every realm which comes under Adam's sin must also be delivered by the redemption of the last Adam, that, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see why we're referring to the scroll as the book of redemption? Everything needs to be bought back because everything went haywire at the fall. 
And everything since that time has not been right. All of creation is still groaning in travail, it says in one of the translations. So as we look at what we have going here, we have a situation where all of nature one day will be back in harmony with itself. One of the great passages describing what takes place at the millennium is in Isaiah chapter 11 and verses 6 through 9. If you listen, I'll I'll read these verses. And if you can picture this, it's not the way it is now. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox, The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That will be a time after the tribulation, during the thousand-year reign of Christ here on the earth, when nature will be back in harmony with itself. Can you imagine the picture of all those animals together, little child leading them? Last night, I was in my backyard, and uh, I looked out the window first, and I saw that there were three deer in the middle of the backyard. They were standing there, and honestly, they were waiting for me because we rendezvous every night. And they were waiting for me, and I walked out, and I have this little feeding dish that I I put a few kernels of corn on. I don't try to feed them, but I give them a little treat. And I come out there and they come. Beth says I'm six feet away from them. I say it's more like four feet, but that's that's just wishful thinking, I'm sure. And and I'm there and there's a, a mother and then there are two, they were fawns in the spring, they're teenagers, I guess now. And uh, the fawns are a little skittish. Not They're getting much better. And the mother, I, I named her, I call her Pirate, she comes immediately right up to me, and we have conversations. Interesting, though, I get, I get the biggest kick out of this. It's, it's one, of the, one of the joys of my life. I love to be able to do that. But there was a point where we're there, and I'm, I'm talking to them, and I'm, we're, we're, they don't say anything back, but, but I'm talking to them a lot. And then on the street behind where we are, a car pulls into a driveway and there are headlights and immediately the deer react. And the two fawns start to go in one direction and ultimately they come back. And then as I get ready to leave, I just take a step and they start like this. They don't fully trust me because they're wild animals and because it's not the millennium yet. Now, ultimately, they could get tamer and tamer, but that's not the norm. It's not the norm for animals to be relating to people that way, but it will be the norm one other time. Will you turn with me to Jeremiah now, chapter 32? Jeremiah 32. We're going to see something here about land being redeemed. Jeremiah is told by the Lord to buy a field, to buy back, to redeem, to ransom a field that belongs to his cousin and his cousin's family. 
We see in in Jeremiah 32, though, there's a problem with buying a field. He's buying a field that is about to be taken by the Babylonians. Doesn't seem to be very much future in doing something like that. Starts out in verse 1. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the 10th year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, which was the 18th year of Nebuchadnezzar, At that time, the army of the king of Babylon was besieging Jerusalem, and Jeremiah the prophet was shut up in the court of the guard that was in the palace of the king of Judah. For Zedekiah, king of Judah, had imprisoned him, saying, Why do you prophesy and say, Thus says the Lord? Behold, I am giving this city into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall capture it. Now, Jeremiah was in jail because they didn't like the message that he was giving. He was prophesying truth. They didn't like it. The truth was the Babylonians were going to overrun the city. They were going to take over everything. And uh, Zedekiah was going to be defeated. He wouldn't escape the hands of these Chaldeans or Babylonians, as they're referred to elsewhere. So in verse 6, Jeremiah said, The word of the Lord came to me. Remember now, he's in prison He knows God told him that Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon are going to come and overrun his people. Verse 7, Behold, Hanimal, the son of Shalom, your uncle, and this is is the word of the Lord now, will come to you and say, Buy my field that is at Anathoth. It's about three miles northeast of Jerusalem. It is going to be overrun along with Jerusalem. The right of redemption by purchase is yours, he's told. Then Hannibal, my cousin, came to me in the court of the guard in accordance with the word of the Lord and said to me, buy my field that is at Anathoth in the land of Benjamin for the right of possession and redemption is yours. Buy it for yourself. Then I knew that this was the word of the Lord. Well, he knew it before he had acted on it. But it tells us in verse 9, and I bought the field at Anathoth from Hannibal, my cousin. Weighed out the money. Verse 10, I signed the deed sealed it, got witnesses, and weighed the money on scales. Then I took the sealed deed of purchase containing the terms and conditions and the open copy. And I gave the deed of purchase to Baruch, that was his secretary, the son of Neriah, son of Masiah, in the presence of Hannibal, my cousin, in the presence of the witnesses who signed the deed of the purchase, and in the presence of all the Judeans who were sitting in the court of the guard, I charged Baruch in their presence, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Take these deeds, both the sealed deed of purchase and this open deed, and put them in an earthenware vessel that they may last for a long time. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Houses and fields and vineyards shall again be bought in this land. So we've got a redeemer. We've got a redeemer who has purchased land, but it's not going to be available for a long time. He's taking precautions to make sure that that deed will survive. Very interesting, because verse 16 says, Then Jeremiah prayed, and he talked to the Lord, and he said at the end of all this, he did it, he bought it, he did what he was told, he knew it was the word of the Lord, it was confirmed, and he says, Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. And then he goes on to talk about how great the Lord is, what the Lord has done in the history of his people. And he comes down to verse 26, and he says, Yet you, O Lord God, have said to me, Buy the field for money and get witnesses, though the city is given into the hands of the Chaldeans. 
what he's saying is, Lord, I trust you completely. You're a great God. You've done all these wonderful things. I did what you told me. I bought the field. But the field is about to get captured by the enemy. And then the word of the Lord came back to Jeremiah, and he said, Is anything too hard for me? Behold, I am giving this city into the hands of the Chaldeans. He goes on to explain what's going on. By the time we get to verse 37, he talks about the good things that are going to happen to the people. They will be brought back to the land. There will be property that will be sold again. It will be a good thing for Jeremiah's family to have this particular deed. Now, all of that leads into this. And again, I'm going to be quoting from Layman Strauss. He said of Jeremiah here, Jeremiah would not enter into possession of this land for some time to come. But one day, when the Jews returned, that sealed scroll would be of great value. It would prove that the one who redeemed the land was entitled to possess it. Jeremiah met the conditions of a redeemer being related to Hannibal, willing to redeem the land and able to pay the redemption price. And that leads us to the second and final point that won't be real long. The scroll is a book of redemption, but it is also the title deed to the earth. And this is something we need to understand before we move on. It is also the title deed to the earth. This historical incident in Jeremiah gives meaning to the seven-sealed scroll in Revelation 4. Because the book that John saw in the hand of him that sat on the throne is the title deed, not to some land in Jeremiah's family, but the title deed to the whole earth. The earth and the atmosphere around it had been in the hands of an invader. The usurper happened to be Satan. He wrangled this title deed and the title to the earth from Adam, whom God had given dominion over it back in Genesis chapter 1. The dominion to this earth was given to Adam. But Satan, in his deceit, was able to get that from Adam so that today the earth is in Satan's power. I didn't know exactly what Dr. Garner was going to be speaking about last Sunday night, but he was speaking about exactly this point at one point in his message. When the devil offered to give all of the kingdoms of the world with their glory to Jesus, if he would bow down and worship him, Jesus did not repudiate that claim. Jesus did not say to him, you can't do that. You don't own these. Well, he did have the title to all of that at that particular time. Satan is also referred to three times Jesus called him the ruler of this world. In John chapter 12, 14, and 15, it's mentioned, called the ruler of this world. Paul calls Satan the god of this world in 2 Corinthians. That's small letter G. And also the prince of the power of the air in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2. And the apostle John wrote, the whole world lies under the power of the evil one in 1 John five nineteen, The scroll that John saw is the title deed to this world, once committed to man to rule for God, but now in the hands of Satan. It's got to be taken back again. The whole land has to be redeemed, repurchased. Moving ahead, if you'll look at Revelation chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6 for just a moment. This is after the opening of the sixth seal. Each one of these seals is going to involve a particular judgment. But in Revelation chapter 6, very interesting 
Verse 15. Then the kings of the earth, they've seen a sample of what God has in store for them in the tribulation. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, that is all the bigwigs, all the people who think they're important, all the people that are recognized as being significant, all of these people are now hiding themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And listen to what they're saying. They're calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Now, very interesting commentary that John MacArthur writes on this particular section, these three verses in Revelation 6. He says, friends, this is the greatest prayer meeting in the history of the world. Only they're not praying to God. They are praying to the rocks. Take a look at those verses again. They're praying to the rocks in fear. This is such a horrible time that the world prays that the mountains might crush them to hide them from this time. And he goes on and puts it this way. You say, what is it that is so horrible? Well, back in Revelation 5.1, God is seen sitting on the throne with a scroll in his right hand, which is sealed seven times. According to Roman law, any will had to be sealed seven times so that nobody could violate it without it being very apparent. The scroll that God holds in his hand, this is the second time we're going to hear this, is the title deed to the earth. It is sealed seven times because it is his will to his son who is to be king of the earth. Jesus comes, takes the scroll, and begins to break the seals. Each time a seal is broken, new judgment is poured out as Jesus takes back the earth. That's why chapter 5 is so significant for us to understand. The title deed to this earth is in that seven-sealed scroll. And little by little, the Lord Jesus will take back the title to this earth, complete the redemption, the servant, the bride already, and now the land and everything here on this earth. Psalm chapter 2.8 Ask of me, God says, and I will make the nations your heritage. He's talking to his son in Psalm chapter 2. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. It's all going back into the right hands. This story is going to have a happy ending. And we get to read the final chapters before they actually happen. At the seventh trumpet judgment, here's what it says in Revelation chapter 11. Verse 15, then the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. You notice he says the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and they shall reign forever and ever. This is at the seventh trumpet. This is when the judgments have taken place and the title deed to this earth has been reclaimed. And what started out with Adam and Adam abdicated, Satan took it over and now Satan's going to be kicked out because God has his final plan. Now that explains why everything is so dramatic in chapter 5. It explains why we see the weeping one 
In the first four verses, we see the Apostle John, he's weeping because nobody can open the scroll. Nobody on the whole planet, nobody anywhere can do that. At least he thinks so until he's corrected. That explains why we see the worthy one in verses 5 to 7. Only one will do. And it's why we see the worshiping ones in verses 8 through 14. And Lord willing, we'll see that in greater detail another time. But I hope you can see what I've tried to explain tonight, that this chapter is a very significant one, and we need to understand this is the book of redemption. This is the title deed to this planet coming back into the right hands. And the prophecies of all of this, it's all part of God's plan. It's a phenomenal plan that God unveils. Let's pray and thank him together. Heavenly Father, thank you that you speak, and it is so. You prophesy and it takes place. You say that you're going to defeat a powerful enemy and you do. Thank you for your great plan, your plan in wisdom. It's taken a lot of years to unfold. But thank you as you revealed to Daniel, it's supposed to take a lot of years. And when the end comes, we will see once again that your word has been entirely 100% true as it always is. Help us to have a newfound, healthy respect for you, for your plan, for your great plan of redemption. And thank you for the redemption of our bodies. Thank you for the redemption of us as servants. Thank you for buying us back out of that marketplace of sin. And thank you for one day the entire planet at peace because the Prince of Peace will be reigning and ruling. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.